Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Actus Podcast, a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. I'm Linnea Archibald, the Associate Editorial Director for Actus, and I will be your host for today's show. We have a great show lined up, and I'm also going to be joined by a few of my Actus team member colleagues, including Director of Programming Rebecca Hendren, Editor and Product Coordinator Carla Kozak, and Associate Editor Jess Flegel. Today's show will provide a glimpse behind the scenes of all things Actus in a more casual, conversational format than our other podcast series, and it will also feature an interview with an Actus member who has been involved with the association. Today, we have a very special guest, Paul Evans, RHIA, CCS, CCSP, CCDS, who was one of our Actus Advisory Board members from 2016 to 2019. He has been an outspoken advocate for the CDI profession, Actus as an association and HIM and coding professionals place in the CDI ranks over the course of his career. And he is entering retirement. As he enters this new phase of life, I am thrilled to have him on the show today to discuss all the ways the industry has shifted during his career and where he sees things going in the future. Prior to his retirement, Paul was a CDI specialist at Sutter West Bay area in San Francisco. He holds degrees in business administration and healthcare information management. Previously, he worked as a data quality coordinator, senior internal auditor, a project manager for a national consulting firm, which you'll hear him mention today, and as the director of various HIM departments. Over the years, Paul has published or contributed to multiple articles and spoken on seminars regarding quality and data management. I am also joined by my co-host today, Lori Prescott, RN, MSN, CCDS, CCDSO, CDIP, CRC. Lori is the Interim Director for Actus and the CDI Education Director for HC Pro. She is responsible for overseeing Actus's thought leadership, strategic direction, and providing an authoritative voice in the industry. Additionally, she is the lead developer and instructor for the CDI boot camps and a member of the CCDSO Certification Committee and the Actus Advisory Board. She is, of course, a frequent guest on the Actus podcast. She has spoken at many Actus conferences on our webinars, and she is the author of the Actus Pocket Guide. Before we jump into our conversation, just a quick reminder that the Actus podcast does offer 0.5 Actus CEUs for the first two days after publication, which can be used towards your CCDS or your CCDSO recertification. We'll share the instructions at the end of the show, so definitely stay tuned for that. So welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today. To kind of get our conversation started, could you paint us a picture of what CDI looked like when you first started in this industry? And how did you end up in this industry in the first place? Sure. Um, It's changed so much just in the last 10 years. When when I actually started doing CDI uh, solely rather than Cody and CDI, we had a very manual process. There were We had no electronic health record, and I'm one of those people that used to chase down a paper record. That was very, very inefficient. You can imagine we would print a log of all the patients that were in-house. We had a very large facility. Actually, we had three facilities in San Francisco. We had to catch a bus to, to audit different campuses. So the team would sit down in the morning, and we strategize which cases, did, who was going to cover which, which units, which wards. And we take our satchels with us because in the satchels, we had to have pre-printed query forms for 
all the uh, queries uh, that we, we may thought we may have to write for the day. We have one for heart failure, one for sepsis, one for kidney failure, so forth. And then we go try to find those charts. Then you would uh, issue your query if you can get your hands on the chart. You tag it with a little paper with a sticker so the physician could see your query. And then you'd go back and you'd visit and revisit and see if the physician responded. And uh, at the end of the day, you'd go back and you'd look and see how it was coded. So far different than, than what we have now with the electronic health record, which is a blessing and makes things much more uh, efficient for us, to say the least. And by the way, this is probably the, the part uh, of the interview where I'll, I'll spend the most time because it's such a wide ranging question. But definitely it was paper in the beginning. The other big issue back in the beginning for me was I, I graduated in 89. So in that day and time, we didn't really have an industry standard as to what comprised a compliant query. We were told to be compliant and offer clinical choices which, which were sensical and not leading to the physician. But no one really had to find what was leading and what wasn't leading. And I think uh, an excellent development since the day at that day and time has been the, the best practices that have been published by AHIMA and some published in cooperating with ACTIS in regards to best query practice and also um, best query practice for clinical validation. So that's been a big difference. Another big difference would be the, well, of course, the internet, because in 89, uh, it was difficult to find and cite and use any, anything such as widely accepted medical criteria. You could do it, but what I was doing and what my peers were doing, uh, I was working for a consulting firm, is we were going to the medical libraries and we were looking up definitions for different things. We didn't have definitions, which right now that are accept, accessible to all, such as Cadigo for kidney function or aspirin for malnutrition or the universal definition of an MI. Those things are, are recent developments. Uh, but, you know, and when you look at the development of, of uh, the query process, and those are very important because he has stated that a query must cite and be supported by relevant clinical indicators. So um, I'd say the the availability of clinical indicators is a very important change um, from the time that I started. And uh, that's actually, I think, made our, our job much easier. Uh, now, how I got into the CDI profession, it wasn't really a profession for some time. Again, I graduated in 89. And as part of being a coding manager, we just issued queries when we had a question. So we were engaging in CDI and we just called it issuing a query. Again, it was much different from then. I remember my first query was for dehydration. I had to take the paper record. I had to look up the VUN. I had to look up the specific gravity of the urine. I had to describe how the patient had been nauseated and vomiting and had uh, sunken eyes and decreased skin turgery with tinting. And I had to tag, uh, check the orders and the in and out record for the administration of 125 cc's per hour. So I had to go through all these things with the paper record and then use tags for the physician so they could respond because the physician's not gonna to go to all those places just to answer your query. So it was a very, very, very cumbersome, cumbersome process back then. Also, what strikes me about that first query, Lori, as I think about it, was even though I queried for dehydration, the patient probably had acute kidney injury because back then, you know, acute kidney injury, uh, the, the consensus was the creatinine had to change. You, you may you may feel the same way. We were told it had to change by at least 1.0 within a 24-hour period. Now we know it's much less than that. So probably that patient had acute kidney injury, but uh, I didn't recognize it. 
I was fortunate enough to work for a consulting firm for about 10, 15 years, and we traveled around the country checking coding and helping people, advising clients about the query process, and, and we helped write letters um, to the RAC auditors. And I was very fortunate because in that team, we had physicians that worked for us and gave us clinical advice. And we actually had a very, very, very detailed clinical indicators for pneumonia, sepsis, acute kidney injury, about a 150-page document. That's sort of the precursor to the Pinson and Tang um, type of reference that you see now. We began using that about 20 years ago. So I was fortunate in that I fell in with a group of uh, RNs and lawyers and uh, fellow coders and physicians that were really thinking about looking at uh, gaps in the documentation process. And then more specifically, um, how I got into this at, in my current role was I happened to have an office directly across the office from the chief of medicine. I'll say his name, Lori Wibiot. And uh, one day he and the ICU medical director, very, very friendly, very friendly people, very open, very supportive. I had had my current that job for about a week. And uh, Ron Elkins, a great guy, ICU director, came to my office and said, hey, we've got a problem with your coders. They're not coding sepsis. And I thought, oh boy, you know, here we go. And he said, yeah, I've got about a hundred charts here where, where they should have coded sepsis. And he had gone through a great deal of trouble and he extrapolated data from literally a hundred patients. And he, in the spreadsheet, basically what he did is he input patients that had SIRS with lactate greater than two. And he gave that to me. He said, you, may, you need to check this out. So basically what he did as a clinician, he identified patients that had SIRS with an infection with lactate greater than two. And uh, I did review those charts and none of them said sepsis. So uh, we had a learning process in which we had uh, to tell the physicians, you've got to say something before we can code it. And that sort of grew. So that's that's the background basically the last 20, 25, 30 years in which you know I, I went from coding to full-time CDI. Paul, I... I... I was giggling all through what you were saying because you were bringing back memories. And I, I just have this vision of Paul Evans with his little backpack with his queries and his little stickers getting on the shuttle to go off to the hospital to hunt down the charts. And it, it's um, for the people that are starting in CDI now with electronic health records and prioritization software and all of that, I know they're thinking, my God, did he work with the dinosaurs? And you didn't because it really wasn't that long ago. I choose to believe it wasn't that long ago because I was uh, sort of doing the same thing. So thank you for that. It made me smile. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. And, and that's exactly how we had to do it. Very manual. Yeah. Now, now you did get to meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of nurses and you go into the ICU and you'd hear them tell you how the patient was doing. So yeah, and we'll get to that as far as the advantage of working on-site versus off-site. But uh, the very inefficient way to perform our work, I have to say, very inefficient. Inefficient, but a whole lot of fun. But we'll let you, yeah, we'll let you talk about that. But you know, as we talk, one of the biggest changes that I see in CDI practice is probably. Um, the introduction of quality initiatives and value-based purchasing into the mix. And I know that you've experienced that change through your work as well. So what specific quality measures do you think CDI can impact most effectively? Well, there are so many. I don't have a reference before me, but there are dozens um, of quality measures. Um, I think we we can impact those upon which we choose in that I think what it, what firms should do is you should you should review your data and see where you are the weakest, and see where you have the most opportunity, and then focus upon those. Personally, myself, I've always had good outcome and, and felt it was a good use of my time to focus on the ODE ratio because 
that conveys so much about the true acuity of your patients in, in terms of, you know, you've had physicians say, well, we have a higher death rate or uh, outcome rate. It's not as good for A versus B. If you, if you can adjust your O to E ratio, supposedly you can adjust for all that. So I've always been a big fan of working with the morbidity and mortality aspects of the ODE ratios. And I've seen how that can work. I also have a suggestion as far as quality measures, uh, because they are so detailed and there are so many, Lori, um, if, a, if a team has the firepower to do so, you could specialize in, in, your, in your quality measures. So perhaps you might do post-op sepsis and I might do post-op respiratory failure and learn everything about the nuances of those different quality measures because there are differences uh, and different things to look for. And some of it's not clinical. Some of it's just, just um, what was the, what, how was a patient admitted? Was it an elective admission or an emergency admission? Uh, so looking for exclusion factors can be, can be one thing. And then part of it could be querying for a risk factor or exclusion factor the patient doesn't have, but they are so complicated. And the, 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 the factors for each of the hacks and PSIs can, can be very voluminous. I think it, it's good to specialize. I think if you can, the state of the art would be working live with the, with the coding HIM team and the quality team so that uh, a CDI team can actually be notified when a hack or PSI is being, uh, when there's an alert during a concurrent admission. And that's something we do. When I'm in a chart, I can see in the software with my flags when my coding, and I'm doing rough coding, triggers a hack or a PSI. We can go ahead and take care of that before the patient's discharged. I, I think also as part of the of quality initiatives would be our role in the validation process, which is not really a, you wouldn't put that into a traditional quality initiative, but in a way it is because using the um, query process to validate, you're, you're ensuring the integrity of your medical record and ensuring that there are no gaps. Oh, if there is a gap, you at least attempt to get input so that the conditions are either ruled out or the, the record strengthened to support uh, whatever condition you think needs to be validated. Great answer. Great answer. I do. You know, it'll be interesting to see in 10 years what the answer to that question is. Um, but I, you were singing my song talking about collaborating with the other departments. So Right. Um, I remember back not too long ago, before we had a live process, the quality nurse would actually give us a message and say, I've got this case that didn't meet a measure. Can can the CDI review the chart? And of course we could, but then you're doing a retrospective review and you've got only 30 days to get it done and coding's already submitted the bill. So concurrent is much better. You do need the right software to do it and you need a lot of people to do it. And you need people that have special expertise for each quality measure, but it's definitely better than doing it after the patient's been discharged and after the record's been coded. But that's how we had we did it back in the day. That's another thing that's changed quite a bit. Yeah, and one of the things I was picking up on, Paul, that we talk a lot about is the kind of specialization aspect of, like you were saying, that somebody could be an expert in reviewing this particular quality measure if you have the bandwidth for it. And a lot of times we see that going along with conversations around standardization of practices, of processes and all the things within CDI. And it's something we talk about a lot within Actus because things that worked really well when CDI was in its infancy maybe don't work as well now that it's kind of a mature 
a, a profession and it's grown really extensively and there's a million other things that CDI now does beyond uh, what they did traditionally. So could you talk a little bit about how you see that standardization piece affecting CDI work? And do you feel like this kind of process of standardization has been largely good for CDI? Uh, I'm a fan of standardization. I think it has been good for CDI. Uh, for example, if you were reviewing small bowel obstruction immediately after surgery, that can be coded as a complication. But if you standardize your criteria so that you incorporate something like NISQIP, then you can strive to get what we like to call the clinical truth and maybe avert the coding of something that really isn't clinically present or relevant, such as a small bowel obstruction when the patient hasn't been, you're not taking into account the NPO status and so forth. But the length of time that's passed between the manipulation of the bowel and the the, the slow return to function. Um, but overall, I, I do believe in using standard criteria. Of course, it needs to be vetted and approved by your clinical subject matter experts. And uh, I don't think it restricts what we do, but I think because our roles are so complex and the clinical practice changes an awful lot, I do think we need to have some parameters in place for the CDI as we work. Obviously, physicians can and should use their own separate clinical criteria, medical judgment to document, and, and they will. And they're not going to change their documentation just because perhaps the CDI team doesn't have the same standard. But on the other hand, I take comfort in knowing that we use Kodigo, Kidgo, people pronounce it differently, and that I need to see certain changes in the creatinine in order to begin to even think about issuing a query, a query for acute kidney injury. Uh, in the same measure, same sort of thing for acute tubal necrosis, I need to see certain parameters that are in place that have been approved by our nephrologist. I think that when you have those sorts of standard criteria in place and standardized query sheets, it actually gives me freedom because I can refer to something uh, and know that I'm doing, I know that I can know that I'm working in a compliant way as long as I represent the, use the correct portions of the medical record and cite the correct criteria in my query. So I like standardization in, in the templates as long as they're uh, modified when they need to be. And I like standardization when it comes to clinical definitions. I think those are good things for, for CDI. They're good things for coders too. I like to think of, and Lori knows, I, I love structure. I love a, a tutorial, a process. She's laughing at me because that's a, it's a very real thing on our team. And I, I often think of standardization as kind of the scaffolding that helps you build the building. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, you're going to work off of it. It's not the actual building, but it supports your work. And I, I feel the same about that in CDI. It's not meant to restrict this. I know some CDI that are not fans of standardization. They feel the best process is to write a query from a blank sheet. Some people can do that, uh, but that can be inefficient. We've got really good templates for encephalopathy and as an example, and they just save you time when, when you use those, those standardized forms and they help you ensure that you're compliant. Also, as far as what you were saying, structure, coding is structured. If you look at the structure of the coding books, I think most coders, when you think about it, they should think in a very structured manner. And I think, I think that's an aspect of, of my own personality. I'm that type of person and that I like structure and I like precision. And the coding is very, very precision. The coding can only be as precise as the language. So I think the CDI code, the CDI profession and the coding profession, I think a lot of people in those fields they have the kind of personalities that like precision. And I think that's a, a byproduct of what we do. 
I'm I'm with you. You know, you talked about different language, Paul, and I'm not going to say you're old because you you and I are both of the the same age. And Linnea, you you have an old spirit to you. That's why you love structure. <laughs> but <laughs> <Thank> uh, <laughs> it's a compliment coming from me. But um, the world's changed in healthcare over the last couple decades drastically. When you think about it, are there any changes in medical terminology or clinical criteria that kind of trickle down uh, to your work as a CDI? What are those clinical criteria changes that you think like rocked your world? You know, what were those things that you think back now and go, oh, that changed how I did things or that that offered a great influence to my practice in CDI? Well, I'll give you an example. In the year 1989, I was taking my senior year uh, advanced clinical pathophysiology. And in that course taught by a physician, we had to write papers on, on different disease processes. And he would just assign them to us. And he gave me acute kidney injury. And uh, as I said, I had to go to the library and find all these different medical journals in, in an effort to define part of, the, part of the paper was, how do you recognize acute kidney injury? thought it would be easy, but it wasn't because I found so many conflicting definitions. And I, the best de- the definition I presented to him included things like hyperkalemia, but it also stated that you had to see, quote, a sudden change in the creatinine, elevation of the creatinine of 1.0 in 24-hour period. Now, I'm not saying that was wrong in 1989, but it certainly is, is incorrect today. So that's an example of something that's changed quite a bit. Uh, again, the adoption of and availability of vetted clinical criteria that literally anyone can get off off of the uh, off the internet. When I started, SERS was not even a concept. You know the concepts of concept of SERS. Whether you like that concept of SERS or not, I know some people don't use it. But the whole idea of a systemic uh, response to either infection or inflammation or surgery had never been introduced into the medical literature, and now this has evolved to to SOFA. That was a big change and. Other things that come to mind would be malnutrition. You now we had the old traditional values with uh, based on lab values and, and things such as that. And now it's totally changed with aspen. Universal definition for myocardial infarction, definition for encephalopathy and acute renal failure. I mean, those are the ones that really made a big impression upon me. Uh, I think the one that made the most impression, again, was the kidney function because that was one of the first ones I remember the CDI world adopted. And uh, it's been very impactful in our work because we, we still career for that to this day. It's funny how the same diagnoses always come up in CDI. <laughs> it's, no matter what we're talking about, I feel like we always end up talking about the same four or five diagnoses. Um, makes us all feel at home. Probably got about a, you probably have about a dozen. Yeah, you probably got about a dozen that, that, that everyone has in their wheelhouse, yeah. I'd say. I think you're right. But four or five are, are the big, big players, but yeah. A good dozen show up quite often. Kind of zooming back to one of the things you mentioned um, in response to an earlier question, one of the huge changes that we've seen over the years is that at the beginning of CDI, the vast majority of professionals worked on site at a healthcare organization. But obviously, we've seen that shift to a more remote remote environment. And of course, that was accelerated exponentially by the pandemic. And according to our members and our survey data, more than 56% of programs function in a completely remote capacity 
currently, and another about 30% work partially remotely. So that is only 10% of survey respondents who work fully on site. Do you think that this has been a positive change for the industry? What challenges could kind of come with that remote CDI work? And how has it changed your own personal work? Yeah, I've always been a big advocate of working remotely uh, long before the pandemic. I think it's positive because it gives CDI managers, for one thing, a chance to recruit from a much wider pool of qualified uh, employees. Uh, say we wanted to offer a job to, to Lori and we're based in California. Well, theoretically, we could offer her a full-time position and she would not have to relocate. And uh, otherwise, we would not be able to find someone like her. So there is that. Uh, I'm. It's How it has changed me personally is I've worked from home from home. Uh, for the last seven or eight years and very grateful to have done so. But the disadvantages are obvious. There is the lack of interplay between your colleagues and the, la- the loss of some social functions. But I think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. Uh, working remotely allows us to, to cover uh, an entire healthcare chain, including hospitals that are 50 or 60 miles apart from each other and they're small. And without uh, remote function, there really would not be a way for them to have any kind of a CDI review at all. So I think it's been a positive thing, working remotely. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad that you would hire me if I was looking for a job. I appreciate that. (laughs) We'd give you a shot. We'd give you a shot. We'd have to pass the nuance test. But we'd give you a shot. It's hard. You'd allow me to do that. Because I'm not not moving to California. We'd give you a shot. And I'm not. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I will jump in though and say, please, nobody take Lori from me. <laughs> oh, Linnea, I, 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 think, I, I think I'm going to stay with you till you're sick of me. But now, as we as we move on and we're kind of reaching an end of a conversation, you know, one thing, Paul, you and I have talked numerous times about is something that I think you're really passionate about is. Who, who can fulfill that role of a CDI? Um, I come from the clinical side. You come from the HIM coding side. And yet we can still talk intelligently together. Um, and I, I love that. And I love that you've been a big proponent in speaking to the fact there are many ways to get to the role of CDI. So I want to just ask you about that. Um, how how do you feel about the multiple pathways into this profession? Well, I want to thank you and Brian, even though he's no longer um, on your team. I want to thank both of you personally for your support you've always given me um, and the work you've done with Actus. I think Actus has been the thought leader in this function for the last 10 years. And uh, joining Actus and being involved with Actus has benefited me so much personally and professionally and really increased my knowledge about all things CDI. So I do want to acknowledge that. And again, thank you for that. And yes, you, you have supported me through some trying times. Uh, as far as coding function, I, I keep on my desk as a, a motivation, a letter of rejection that I have for a job that I applied for. Um, I don't want to read the whole thing, but um, I wrote a, a CDI director one time. You know, she had an open position posted and I asked her, was RN a requirement? And she said, "Yes, we're still open to RNs if we can't find a uh, if we can't find a qualified candidate." So she basically was telling me, "Because I'm not an RN, I can't be qualified." And unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, that remains a prevalent view. It, it's very frustrating to me because I'm an RHIA, I'm a CCS, I'm a CCSP, and I've been a CCDS for about a decade. I've written a lot of papers um, that 
are deep in clinical, very deep in clinical, and have actually lectured the surviving sepsis campaign folks and helped write the HEMA clinical best validation, best practice, and so forth. But the reality is if I applied for 10 jobs a day, about 90% of them probably wouldn't even take my application because I'm not an RN. I'm still not exactly sure why this exists. I think what we have to acknowledge is there are different levels of coders and coding professionals. And uh, I wish we were at the point that more coders could be considered. I'm kind of at a loss at, at this point as far as what more can be done about that. I would say some of us do have excellent clinical knowledge. We can be very adept in the CDI process. And uh, absolutely, you having coding knowledge is supposed to be half the job. And uh, having that coding knowledge can really help you quite a bit in the CDI world. I'm satisfied with what I've done. I'm really grateful that I've had a great career and met a lot of people and made a lot of friends. And uh, it's been great to call it a day. Aw, I'm sending you hugs right now, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate you, Paul, both for joining us today and, of course, for your long history and devotion to Actus and to CDI. It's um, been a pleasure to chat with you and chat with you again after a few years. Um, and I know Lori feels the same. So thank you so much. Absolutely. As we close out this conversation today, if our audience has any questions about anything we talked about with Paul today, you can feel free to email the Actus team at info at And I will also put that email address in today's show notes, which are available on actus.org and in your podcast app. And you can grab it right from there should you want to reach out to us. Now it's time for the Actus Update, a regular segment featuring the latest news on what's going on inside our association. As I mentioned at the top of today's show, I am joined by a few of my editorial team colleagues, Rebecca, Carla, and Jess, for our semi-regular special edition of the Actus Update here. I really can't believe that we're already at the end of October, and yet it also sort of feels like it should already be 2024. So that's confusing, and time is weird, and there's a lot going on, and we have a lot to tell you about. So I'll just jump in with our first update, which is the 2023 CDI salary survey, which is open for responses for just a few more days until October 31st. At least in my opinion, the salary survey is one of the most valuable things that we put out every year. Not only does it contain information about salaries, but it also includes data around hiring trends, demographics, raises, promotions, and so much more. So if you're looking to advocate for a higher salary for yourself or for your staff, or you're looking to expand your program or just benchmark against your peers, the salary survey data is really invaluable. Um, and I know we hear that from our members as well. So it's not just me pontificating. I, hopefully, I, everybody thinks it's a valuable resource. And I do want to mention right now, we have quite a lot of responses from CDI leaders, thanks to our wonderful Leadership Council members. But we would really love to see more responses coming in from staff level folks, because the more variety of titles that are represented, the better. And then the more responses in general, the more useful that data is going to be to everybody. So we really do encourage you to respond to that. The survey report is going to be published late 2023, early 2024 for our Actus members. And of course, all of your answers will remain anonymous. As we know, this is somewhat of a, of a sensitive topic. 
And in addition to the salary survey, the applications for our ACTA scholarship awards are also open. So Jess, this is sort of your baby now. Can you tell everyone a bit about the scholarship program and what folks need to apply? Yes, of course. Uh, Yeah, I'm really excited to be working again with the Furthering Education Committee this year. Um, We're going to be selecting the recipients for four of the scholarships that we have available and the applications are currently open if you have didn't know yet yet um, until November 14th. And that's for any CDI professional who is eager to learn but lacks the financial support for for those kinds of opportunities. Um, And you can find all the information about like eligibility requirements, the review process um, and such under the events and education tab of the ACTUS website. by clicking on the ACTUS Scholarship Program in the tab dropdown. Um, but here is an overview just of the four scholarship awards that are offered this year again, um, similar to last year. We have the first, the introduction to CDI Scholarship, which is a one-year ACTUS membership and enrollment in the CDI Apprenticeship Program that ACTUS has. Um, and that's for those people who are, are more starting their journey um, into CDI. And then the Professional Development Scholarship, which is registration to an online CDI bootcamp um, of the recipient's choice. And third, the Outpatient CDI Scholarship. Um, this is registration to the in-person ACTUS uh, Symposium for Outpatient CDI, um, which is pretty exciting. And then last, but certainly not least, our Melissa Varnavis Scholarship, um, which is registration to the ACTUS National Conference in 2024. Um, so yeah, really excited about that. I really encourage everyone to to look into it, apply, or to reach out to those who you know could really benefit from from this sort of uh, opportunity. I know it's not all of the opportunities from Actus that the CDI community can apply for at the moment either. Is that right, Carla? That's correct, Jess. We are approaching my favorite time of year, and I'm not just talking about Christmas. It is officially posters and award season. Last week, we opened up the call for poster submissions and the nominations for the Actus Achievement Awards, and we've made some exciting changes to the awards this year that I want to share with you. First, we're excited to announce that we've renamed the Recognition of Professional Achievement Award to the Accomplishment in CDI Award, and we've lowered the minimum number of years of experience that a nominee must have in order to be eligible. So now you can nominate anyone who's been in the CDI field for two years or more for this honor. Additionally, we recognize that the CDI profession has come a long way in the past 15 or so years, and many of you have been along for that whole journey. We want to recognize those who've dedicated their careers to the profession with the CDI Professional of the Year Award. So we're now asking that nominees for this award have at least 10 years of experience in CDI to be eligible. As in the past, we'll also be offering our Excellence in Provider Engagement Award, Diversity in CDI, and Melissa Varnavis Spirit of Service Awards. I encourage everyone to think about someone that has really made an impact on their CDI journey and take a minute to nominate them, to really recognize them for that, for their contributions to the field or their contributions to you professionally or personally. You can use the link in today's show notes to learn more about each award and to nominate someone. We're also now accepting poster submissions. Now, posters demonstrate a new initiative or project, um, a success story from your organization, a unique educational outreach, a creative way of overcoming a challenge, anything that you want to share with your CDI peers about what's going on in your department or at your facility. 
And what's really exciting is that all of these posters are displayed at the Actus Conference in the exhibit hall, and selected poster creators receive $200 off admission to the conference. You can apply using the link in today's show notes and learn more about what it's like to be a poster creator at the Actus Conference. Now, just a note that poster submissions and awards nominations must be submitted by the end of this year, so that's on or before December 31st. And speaking of the conference, uh, while we're still talking about that, you have some exciting news to share too, Rebecca, don't you? I do. And I could not be more thrilled about this. I'm like a child unwrapping a, a holiday gift. It is time to review the agenda for the 2024 Actus National Conference. And I cannot overestimate the incredible submissions that we received this year. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And our events committee just had the hardest job in the world trying to narrow down more than 220 wonderful applications that were received into just 48 open slots in the agenda. So that was an incredibly difficult job. Um, And a lot of submissions that were absolutely tremendous did not make it in just because we do not have space. But I think if you take a look at the agenda, you'll find a lot to like about it. And I'm always really awed and impressed by the people who take so much time and dedication to sharing their knowledge, their success stories, what they've learned with the profession. And to me, this is what Actus is all about, the sharing of our knowledge. So collectively together, we're all improving, learning, growing, celebrating. So check it out. There's, There's a lot of really interesting topics on this year's agenda. There's all the clinical encoding knowledge that you might need to find. Um, And then we've got interesting topics on uh, professional development. You know, are you looking for something about leveraging power dynamics or mentoring even, or talking about emotional intelligence and, and how you can improve that, which is crucial for so many of us as we work in our teams. And then new this year, we have a track focused on denials. And we've got some really proactive, positive sessions in there. Uh, things like using clinical guidelines and, and other ways that you can try and prevent denials before they happen. Um, another thing I wanted to know is the the breadth of pediatric topics that we have this year. Sometimes we um, we struggle with, with getting a variety of pediatric topics, but this year the applications were incredible. So if you're in the pediatric setting or looking to expand into pediatric CDI, please do check those out because I think you'll find some really new and innovative sessions in there. But I also wanted to let you know that we do have the agenda released for the Actis Symposium Outpatient CDI as well. And new this year, we have um, a single track on day one where we'll all be together and learning together. And then on day two, we're going to break into two tracks gives you a little bit more options, whether you're looking for maybe a case study type approach, or you're looking for something that's more about program development. There's a lot of options for you in the outpatient symposium. And then finally, the Physician Advisor Forum has also released the agenda. And for any physician advisors listening or the physician advisors that you know and work with, please do forward that along because that has a fantastic agenda this year as well. And I could go on and on and on about this, um, but I will stop in the interest of time and turn it back over to Linnea. (laughs) I am also equally excited about the conference. And for those uh, listening, putting together that agenda is a monster 
task. The the wide variety and just the amazing sessions that were all submitted this year. I mean, we had a record-breaking number of sessions submitted in the application period. It's just so much work. So um, kudos to Rebecca and Carla and to our events committee for sorting through all of those and making the tough decisions so that we all can just show up in Indianapolis in April and enjoy a really fantastic event. Um, it, It really is a monster task to do that so we appreciate it and we are excited yeah we're excited and five tracks for everybody to choose from in indianapolis so if there's uh, anything that you want to go to there's just all the different options that's so exciting we love the conference i mean i for obvious reasons but (laughs) um (laughs) it really is uh the highlight of our year so i hope folks are excited uh as We all mentioned, I think everything that we talked about today will be in the show notes. Those are available on actus.org. If you click on the resources tab and go to the actus podcast section, you can find a link to today's episode and those show notes in the list on that page. It's just under kind of the little show description where it tells you about the actus podcast and you can get all of those links right there. And of course, if you do have any questions about anything we talked about or frankly, anything actus related, you can just email us at info at actus.org. That email address goes directly to our team. So you will be hearing from one of us directly if you shoot us an email there. We will certainly look forward to hearing from you. And um, we hope that you are just as excited about our updates today as we are. As a reminder, before we close out, each Actus podcast episode offers 0.5 Actus CEUs, which can be used towards recertifying your CCDS or your CCDSO credential for those of you who listen to the show in the first two days from the time of posting. To receive your 0.5 CEUs, go to the show page on actus.org by clicking on the Actus podcast link under the resources tab, and then clicking on today's episode from the list on that page. Then follow the instructions in the show notes for today's episode, and your certificate will be automatically emailed to you upon submitting the brief evaluation. Do note, in order to access the link to the CEU form, you have to click play on the recording of today's episode underneath the show notes on that show page and go all the way, listen all the way to the end of the episode until the music ends, and then the CEU link will appear appear on the screen. The cutoff for today's episode CEU is Friday, October 27th at 11 p.m. Eastern. After that point, the CEU period will close and you will no longer be eligible for those 0.5 CEUs for this week's episode. With that, we have reached the end of today's Actus podcast episode. We will be back in two weeks on Wednesday, November 8th for our next show, which will be part of our Leadership with Linnea series. If you would like to receive reminders about each episode, make sure you're subscribed to our free weekly newsletter, CDI Strategies, which always includes a link to the new episode when it is available. You can listen to the show anytime on the Actus website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. All the links that we discussed during today's episode will be available in the show notes. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you would take a minute to leave us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice to help others find our show. Our intro and outro music is Media Noche by Dion Key, and our ad music is Take Me Higher by Jazzar, both obtained from the free music archive. 
If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, please feel free to email us at info at And until next time, take care, everyone.